Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is March 9th, 2022. This episode of Occupied Thoughts is a webinar we recorded earlier today entitled Israeli Apartheid, the Supreme Court, and Land Confiscation, the case of Masafar Yatta. As you listen to the podcast, you'll hear me refer to sources that we shared with the live audience via the Zoom chat box. Those sources are all available on the FMEP website on the landing page for this podcast. To find that page, please go to www.fmep.org. Click on the events tab and then on the events index to find the landing page for this podcast and all of the sources. The title of this episode is Israeli Apartheid, the Supreme Court and Land Confiscation, the Case of Masafar Yatta. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am truly delighted to be here today with Ali Awad, a writer and activist from Tuba, a village in Masafar Yatta, and Maya Rosen, a Jerusalem-based Palestine solidarity activist. We will discuss life in Masafar Yatta, and the threats facing its residents, as well as the international campaign to save the villages there from expulsion and dispossession. And we will look more broadly at one of the mechanisms Israel uses to take Palestinian land, to remove or reduce the Palestinians living on it, and to make that land available to Israeli settlers. A few words of background. Masafar Yatta is in the South Hebron Hills part of Area C of the West Bank. The Palestinians who live there face ongoing threats of dispossession from their lands and demolition of their homes and other structures. There are many Israeli settlements in Masafar Yatta and the Palestinians there face increasing violence from the settlers backed by the IDF. A few weeks ago, FMEP hosted a webinar focused on the dispossession of Palestinians through state-backed settler violence and through the increasing use of settler farms as a way to take over Palestinian land. Today, we are focusing on a different aspect of life in Masafar Yatta. In the early 1980s, in violation of international law, the IDF declared part of Masafar Yatta, which is an area the size of about 30 square miles, 35,000 dunams. It's home to more than 1,000 people in 12 villages. And in the early 1980s, the IDF declared it to be a firing zone, firing zone 918. For decades, the Palestinians living in firing zone 918 have faced constant threat of expulsion. Al-Haq, the Palestinian human rights organization, describes this threat of expulsion as forcible transfer, which amounts to a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions and a war crime. The families in the firing zone have been fighting their their expulsion through an appeal to the Israeli Supreme Court. That is something we're going to talk about today. Next week on March 15th, they have a very important hearing at the court and the court is expected to render a decision on whether the state of Israel will be permitted to expel them. I want to start with you, Ali. You live and grew up in Tuba in firing zone 918. In 1999, Israel carried out expulsions from the firing zone. Will you please tell us about your family's experience during that time? Yes, Sarah, thank you for the amazing introduction. And uh, so, yeah, so like uh, in 1999, starting like in August, the like the civil administration, which is the arm of the Israeli army, like it's called civil administration, but there is nothing civil in it. It is just an arm of the Israeli army have distributed to the whole villages, the 12 villages of Masafar also like beside my village, beside my family and evacuation orders. So the, after the evacuation orders, the evacuation notes, like asking people to leave their homes, like to leave their only homes, where to go, nobody know. So the people after three months, they just stayed home. So then like the, the Israeli civil administration and the Israeli army have used the force in order to put part of the people 
in their tracks after demolishing their homes to, to make them leave their communities. So that's exactly what happened also to my family. Like at that time, I was one year old in 1999 and at the beginning of 2000, I don't remember anything, but these are stories that my grandfather have been telling me since I, since I got conscious to this life. So my family only like after they pushed them out of our village Tuba, my family just found one solution like to get other few tents in order to build like a camp around four kilometers away from our village Tuba in a land that also belonged to my family. They built like one tent for a family which is about 20 members living in like a small tent and also like my family have like hundreds of sheep that will also will live in that extremist winter in just one tent so also like during during that time like my family were working also with the lawyers in order to come back to their homes so they said we're going to stay in this camp in this temporary camp until we could come back to our caves and to our village in tuba unfortunately the civil administration and also the forces followed them to this temporary camp to this alternative shelter that they found for themselves to protect themselves and at the evening of in in march at the evening like at the end of the day a bus of soldiers, like my grandfather told me, about 40 soldiers with the, with the civil administration officers showed to the families camp and confiscated everything, like the tents, the fences, and also like the food of the family and the sheep. They left my family with their, like the parents, with their children and with the, with the sheep. And it was the time that the sheep gives birth under that rainy in the hell without anything so also like until the evening the family could get could borrow another another tent to build in the same place for themselves but for the sheep for the herds they stayed outside without any kind of shelter my grandfather told me that he spent that night collecting woods from the hills in order to make some fire in order to keep some warmth for us in our tents. However, unfortunately, the sheep did not get a tent. He told me as well that at the morning, he found out that 30 newborn lambs were frozen dead. And they spent this like this, this in this way until the petition that was received to the Israeli high court to that we come back home to, that was accepted, not as a final ruling that we know that we're going to stay in our homes, but it was just an interim injection that we, until today, 20 years after, we are still living under the threat of waiting for the final ruling. So that was like briefly kind of the main experience of telling one day of more than six months that my family have lived through during the evacuation of the 1999. Thank you, Ali, thank you for telling us. And, um, and thank you for telling us also how you know that you're, you were raised on this. You, it happened when you were a baby and you have known this your whole life. This is such a key part of your- Yes, like, so I imagine it, I take it as in my imagination, but then I remember that I have lived it because I was unconscious to life that time. So I think that this is something that is story that happened during the Nakba for the whole Palestine. But I then think, I think at the end of the day, I was also like suffered the freezing that the lamps of my grandfather have passed through. Like fortunately, my grandfather gave me like some warmth, warmth in that tent. But unfortunately, his little lamps, he found, he told me he found them did frozen like more than half of them their mothers the sheep of his sheep just gave birth during that night but they had no even fence to control them to step them not even any kind of shelter to protect them from that freezing night so of course the the little lambs were dead 
Thank you, Ali. Thank you for telling us and for sharing this with us and, and um, for starting off our discussion so clearly rooted in, in, in your family's experience and in the experience of the people of these villages in firing zone 918. And uh, I just want to add, I've seen that my colleague has put um, links into the chat there, uh, the Israeli Human Rights Organizations, B'Tselem, and also ACRI, the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, have written a lot about firing zone 918, including taking testimonies from other people about uh, this, this time, these six months in 1999, when uh, the Israeli army gave the orders for evacuation, some people evacuated, and then the rest were forced out, like Ali's family was, was forced out. Um, so look up, look at those links and they are available also, they will be available also on our, on our website. And Maya, I want to turn to you. Ali just mentioned this interim injunction uh, from the Supreme Court that was, was um, a response to petitions filed on behalf of the villagers by the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, ACRI. Um, and Ali's family was, was able in, in 2000 to go, to go home because of this, to home back to their land in Tuba because of this interim injunction. Can you talk to us about the legal proceedings who is representing the families? What are their claims? What has been the progress of the case over the last 20 years? Um, will you set the scene for us ahead of the hearing that's happening next week on the 15th of March? Sure, um, that sounds great. And thanks so much to both of you and especially Ali for setting the stage and bringing us up to 2000 uh, when the legal proceedings pick up. I think the main point in terms of where we're starting is exactly as Sarah Ann and Ali explained that the last 22 years since the year 2000, people in Masafariyata in the area that was declared the firing zone have lived under the legal threat of expulsion and complete uncertainty about how the case will conclude. There've been many, many hearings since 2000. Um, the attorney Shlomo Lecker, along with the Associ Association for Civil Rights in Israel, have represented the family members in the communities. And there's a few central claims in the community's case, all based in uh, bedrock principles of international law. The main one being that it is in opposition of international law to use occupied territory for the occupier's own benefit. Um, and the claim in that case is that the firing zone must be nullified. Uh, there's a variety of ways that um, the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, ACRI, and Shlomo Lecker have tried to demonstrate that the firing zone is being used for the occupier's own benefit. One example is that the state has explicitly claimed that they need the area because the terrain is similar to Lebanon. Um, and they need to do military training for Lebanon. Now, that's something that clearly is not serving the population in the firing zone. Um, and that is one of the central claims of the case. In addition, forcible transfer of a protected population is also prohibited under international law. Um, and there's also some sort of more technical legal arguments about what the injunction in 1999, which expelled residents actually said, whether or not that included permanent residents. And a main, in the last hearing, which was in August, 2020, a main debate uh, focused around the question of whether or not the residents are considered permanent residents. And the judge made clear in that case that they are, um, which is a really important step. And the argument there was a very problematic one that because um, of seasonal agriculture work that precludes the possibility of permanent residence, which is a problematic definition of residence to apply. Um, so that was an important step. And basically what happened is that we thought, everyone involved thought that the hearing that happened last in August, 2020 was going to be the last hearing on the case. The judge presiding was set to retire in the spring of 2021 and had said that he would issue a ruling before his retirement. And then what happened is that the Masafar Yata Regional Council, the Palestinian local council that oversees the area requested to join the case in order to bring a very important perspective on the unique uh, cultural historical um, history of the community and was granted by the court. And in order to hear the new information brought by the regional council, it was decided that it would have to extend beyond the judge's retirement. And that's why we have now this, uh, this next hearing, which is happening in six days on March 15th. And we don't know what will happen in that case. It very well could be the final hearing in this 22 year long saga. 
Um, and also I think important to note could set a, is very likely to set a precedent for other Palestinian communities living in firing zones in other places in the West Bank. And so is um, both for the residents and for the West Bank as a whole, a really, really crucial case. Great, thank you. Thanks for setting us up also and understanding what's, what's happening with this legal process uh, and what next week's hearing is going to be. And um, Ali, I, I wanna ask you more about the communities of Firing Zone 918 of Masafriyata. Um, but before I do that, I just, Maya just mentioned that, that this case is really important for uh, people living in firing zones across the West Bank. And so it's important to note that 18% of the West Bank is designated as a closed military zone for training as, as firing zones. Uh, the majority of that land is in the Jordan Valley and in the South Hebron Hills. And the majority of the Palestinians, the thousands of Palestinians who live in that land are herders like your family living off the land like your family. And I'll, and I'll ask you more about your family um, in, in a moment. And so um, Masafariyata is a, a unique place unto itself and it is similar to these other communities that are facing threat uh, in firing zones. So please, I know that you have, um, you're a writer and a researcher. You regularly publish articles in 972 and in Haaretz about life in Masafariyata. And you have uh, recently begun a project that focuses on telling the stories of the people of Masafariyata. So I wanna ask you to tell us about these people. Um, who lives there? What are their lives like? How do they support themselves? Where do the children go to school? Um, why is it so important to you that you have dedicated your talents and your time to telling the stories of the people of Masafariyata? Okay, so like for the, who, who are the people that lives there? Like the, first of all, like they are like Palestinian people who are like, mostly as you said, like shepherds and farmers, like especially shepherds. Like they are shepherds that are great, like, based on the husbandry of the livestock as the main and the only livelihood source for the for themselves and cultivating the fields like the whole like the whole fields around the, those 12 communities are cultivated mainly as like barley and wheat and the crops that will uh, keep some food for the for the for their their flocks in the in in winter so uh, I mean, uh, so maybe you can ask me like one one question one one by one. Sorry for uh, no, ab ab absolutely. Um, yeah, tell us about the children and of Masafariyata. Where do they go to school? What are their lives like? I know that you've written about this. Yeah, of course, I was one of them. <laughs> so, uh, as you know, like. As the goal of the state of Israel is to expel the people from those, those communities, from those villages, there are like direct policies and indirect policies in order like to make the people live by themselves. Israel explicitly would say that we declare your home as a firing zone and we will say that your home is a firing zone and we will expel you out of it. And in another way, they said like under this excuse, first of all, it's a firing zone. Other thing, it was classified after Oslo Accords, like the whole Masafir Yatta, as the whole South Hebron Hills as Area C. So it's totally under the Israeli military control, which control the population themselves in their homes, their land, and their construction. So any master plan, which is like the, the structure of building any village, it should be received to the Israeli civil administration. Again, Israeli civil administration, but what it is, military officers who are like arms of the Israeli army that control the life of the Palestinians. But as we know, in the area C, 98% of these master plans are rejected. So any kind of infrastructure in our villages, they see it as illegal. Even kindergartens, schools, and also like the kinder and medical units are considered as illegal and under and as a subject for the demolition. Like here in Masafariyatta, we are facing a demolition of such structures 
of main services for a human being in a, in, in weekly. So for us in Masafariyatta, we have no any in the Masafariyatta villages, we have no any authorized structures, no any village that is seen as legal by the Israeli civil administration. So actually we can't really build any regular homes. What about schools? So for us, like we have to struggle and to build like schools, like there are now a few schools in the villages of Masafariyatta like the village of Al-Fakhit, like the village of Al-Majaz, like the village of uh, Jimba, for example. But they are main, mainly primary school for the kids, and they all have demolition order. All of them, they get demolition order, and they also, some of the, the, the Palestinians used caravans in order to teach their kids. And some of those caravans, as, as it happened also in the villages of Masafariyatta, it was confiscated like the caravan and mobile rooms, it was confiscated with the toy trucks of the Israeli army. For me, as for me, like in my village, I don't have a school. So I had like to, like to go to the nearest Palestinian school around me. It was in the village of Itwani, which is like three kilometers, less than three kilometers away from my village. But that's, that distance, it was also before the establishment of the chain of the Israeli settlements in the Masafariyatta area. Like my village is separated from the other villages and from the nearest Palestinian city in the West Bank by a chain of settlements and Israeli illegal outposts. So a few hundred meters away from my village, it was established in the early 2000 also, while the Israeli army was putting the Palestinians in the trucks out of their homes in Masafariyatta, they were connecting the, settle, the illegal settlers, depending to the Israeli law, Chavat Ma'on is considered as illegal. They put the Palestinians in the trucks out of their own homes, and they also connect the settlers in illegal outposts with electricity and water, and, sub, and don't do, like keep eye blind about every home they built. So this outpost disconnected my village from from my school in 2002 the last time we tried to do to use this road that we one day we used to go to school but last time we we were attacked by the settlers so from 2002 until 2004 the kids had to, to make a detour of an extra 10 kilometers climbing the hills in a detour in order to avoid the settler violence of this outpost. Chavat Ma'on, it's known like people, uh, the, the audience that are, pe the people that are listening to us now, they can search it and see like how violent is this outpost. In 2004, American volunteers from Christian Peacemaker team decided to come to the, to the, to the Masafariyatta in order to bring those kids back to their main road. Like, except like it was, the kids needed from the sunrise until the sunset in order to get to attend their school. So then, yeah, and if 10 kilometers at the morning, 10 kilometers back home. So the volunteers decided to bring them back for their 20 kilometer, 20 minutes walk road. Unfortunately, in December 2004, when the school semester just started here in Palestine, the, the volunteers started working with the kids inside where Chabat Ma'an was established. A masked settlers from this outpost attacked the kids and the volunteers with the chains and with the sticks. A brutal attack that reached to fractures in different parts of the volunteers and the kids. So after that, in the, in the Israeli parliament, in the Knesset, instead of opening an investigation, of illegal presence of settlers, criminals who attacked six and seven years old kids going to school, they said they specialized a jeep of army to accompany the kids from the morning from their home to school and the same from the, the afternoon from their school back to their village. I have done it for 12 years in my, in my school grades. And also now my cousins and the, uh, 
they were not born yet in 2004 and, and now today they go to school and, and they have to do the same routine. So either it would be the schools in, in Masafariyata, in some villages where it's a little bit far away from the outpost, either you will attend your desk at the open when your school is confiscated or that you need to wait for the military to attend your school. So that's like also the situation of the education in our community. Thank you. In our villages. Thank you, Ali. And, and, I, and I, I wanna encourage everyone listening to read what you've written about going to school. Um, and and, 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 and how you loved school nonetheless, but um, what, what you faced and, and, and what you face now, um, what, what uh, children face now in, in order to go to school. And what you described to us was very much how uh, the Israeli uh, government and military accommodate settlers, accommodate and, um, and make life uh, possible for settlers living on, on Palestinian land um, in, in multiple ways. But that is really an important piece of the story here as we're talking also about, about firing zones. And I'm going to ask Maya to talk to us a little bit more about firing zone 918, specifically about the history of it and firing zones more broadly. Um, and I, I want to point out as, as I ask you that Maya, that we know, for instance, our, our colleague Dwol um, Etkes from, uh, from Karim Navot has mapped the firing zones and he estimates that no training is held on about 80% of the land of firing zones. And he calls the land that is taken for firing zones, he calls it a land bank, a bank of land to be used for settlers for military purposes ostensibly, but really to be used for settlers who can cultivate it or expand their settlements on it. And, um, and we know of particular instances where the Israeli military has changed the, the um, the contours, the boundaries around firing zones in order to enable settlement growth on firing zones while, while still demolishing Palestinian homes within those firing zones. So tell us specifically, Maya, about firing zone 918, please. Great. So I think the most important thing to understand is exactly what you're saying, that the declaration of firing zones is a tool of land theft that Israel uses in order to steal land in the West Bank. It's one tool of several that Israel has in its toolbox, the same way that nature reserves and land expropriation are also tools. So to the declaration of firing zones for ostensibly for military use. Um, and as you've quoted research from Dura Edkis, 18% of the, of the West Bank has been declared firing zones and a very small percentage of that is actually used for military training in any way, um, which shows the extent to which something else is actually happening here. Um, and firing zone 918 in particular, the numbers exactly stack up. It's about 30 to 35,000 dunam in the firing zone. And only about 1,000 dunam of that has been used for military training, um, which you know casts light on whatever need the Israeli military has to take over this vast amount of, of land. And also what you said about um, settlement and outpost expansion is true in firing zone 918 as well. There are three outposts that are partially in the area that was declared the firing zone and the state's positions on what the boundaries should be have changed in order to allow those outposts to remain and to continue to grow. Um, speaking a little bit more about firing zone 918 in particular and why it was declared, it's important also to say that Palestinians have been living in the area that is now firing zone 918 in Masafrayata for a very, very long time since the early 19th century. We have documentation of this from aerial photos from World War I, uh, reports actually by Israeli government officials from the early 60s. And we now know that firing Wait, zone- Wait, one second, Maya. I want you to repeat that and slower. Okay. That last piece of what you said, and I know that in the in in the links that we have shared in in the Israeli Human Rights Organization's reports, they talk about exactly what you just said. But say it one more time. Okay, so we know that Palestinians have been living in Masafrayata in the area that was then declared firing zone nine one eight for a very long time, um, since the early nineteenth century. There's a significant amount of documentation about this. There's aerial photos from actually the German army from World War One. Um, 
showing Palestinian communities in the area, Israeli government officials who wrote like from the nature reserves and other government ministries who wrote reports in the 60s documenting communities there. Despite this, the state now claims that there were not Palestinian communities there until after the firing zone was declared, which we have clear evidence disproving. Um, this has also now all been submitted to the court and is part of what's going to be examined and discussed on the 15th. Um, and we also now have documentation and knowledge that the reason that firing zone 918 was declared was in order to push the Palestinians who were living in these areas off of their land. Um, this was a nefarious use of government policy in order to do this. And there's a pretty um, damning document that was found by Akevot, an Israeli NGO that uses archives um, in order to bring relevant political content to light that uh, they found protocols of a meeting in 1981, soon before the firing zone was declared, between government officials and the World Zionist Organization. And in that meeting, it becomes clear they knew that there were Palestinians living there and they wanted to declare the firing zone in order to infringe upon Palestinian land. Um, so if it's okay, I actually wanna to read to you from this document, um, from the protocols of this 1981 meeting. Um, so in the meeting, Ariel Sharon, who was at the time in 1981, the Minister of Agriculture, he's the chair of the meeting and he's responding here to the army's concern about not having enough land for training. So he says, um, we now have a thought that we need to close off additional training areas at the border of the lower parts of the Hebron mountains and the Judean desert. This is in light of the phenomenon that I explained earlier, the spread of rural mountainous Arabs toward the desert. We definitely have an interest in increasing these areas there and can add many training areas for you there. And we have a significant interest in you being in that area. Um, so that's Ariel Sharon explaining exactly his strategic interest in declaring a firing zone on Palestinian land and a sort of clear demonstration of uh, research that many Israeli and Palestinian human rights organizations have done about uh, the use of firing zones as a tool of land grab and land theft. Great, thank you, Maya. Thank you, that was um, helpful and, and important and, um, and lays out so clearly what the motivation is behind the establishment of firing zone 918. And, and, and as Ali said, and as his experiences, this is the use of a tool in order to remove Palestinians from their land. Um, and Ali, I wanted to come back to you specifically to ask not just about what it's like to live under the, the, the threat of, of, of settler violence um, and in a place where there is no master plan, all of the structures are illegal, you cannot build a school, children are uh, in such danger of going to school, um, but specifically the experience of, of uh, being in a zone where the military does do some training uh, at some times. And I, I know that the, the IDF conducted a large military exercise in February of 2021. Um, can you tell us in, in uh, firing zone 918, can you tell us about the impact of that, of that uh, training in a, a year ago? Yeah, so like, uh, as Maya just said, that uh, in 35,000 donums of land that declared as a firing zone, that they just like observed that the Israeli army is like, had like needed actually just 1,000 donum that we have like made like training, actual firing training. So in the, in the Masafar Yatta area, actually it mostly happened near to like, almost like three villages, which is Al-Halawi, Al-Merkiz, and Jimba. So for example, in my village Tuba, it's like never like the tanks passed through it. But it actually happened like in the, in the village of Al-Merkiz. And I actually want to say that, yani, it's very clear that they don't really need our homes as fields because they don't have a places to train their soldiers. But just they also like bringing the tanks in the time where the, when the Palestinians like plant their fields. So they will come and park their tanks and move among the fields of the Palestinians in order to make the Palestinians lose their crops 
and lose their livelihoods. And this is again as an indirect, even for bringing the soldiers to train inside Masafir Yatta, just in a specific time of the, of the year, like February or March or this time, this is like the main time that the Palestinians are already cultivated their fields and are waiting for the after spring in order to harvest them. So this is like for the Palestinians living in the firing zone when they, while they are waiting for their fields in order to bloom and to, to be ready to harvest them, they bring their tanks and also and uh, like uh, drive their tanks inside the Palestinians' uh, fields. Also for the Palestinians, as we said, they are not for the housing issue, the Palestinians are not allowed to build any kind of structure. So that's why the Palestinians in Masafir Yatta also still catching the caves because they still need them as main shelters in their lives for their children and for their, for their livestock. The tanks enter inside the village drive randomly and with its chains. Sometimes it's parked at the roof of some of the caves as what happened last February in the village of Jimba and, for, and uh, break the roof of the cave. So the Palestine, this is also an indirect policy where they also demolish like a Palestinian house in the villages of uh, Masafayata. For the other issues like which is in the, in the campaign that we're gonna talk about, which is Save Masafayata campaign, we have interviewed and we wrote about a kid who is 17 years old He's a shepherd helping his parents. He's the only kid for his parents. He needs like to work hardly, physically hard in order to gain his livelihood. He lost his hand because of the Israeli army leftovers were training less than 100 meters from his home. I saw my own eyes that the soldiers live fire, firing fields just less than 100 meters away from his home. So for living in the, in the firing zone, while also the tanks will destroy your home, the tanks will destroy the food of your sheep, you might also be following your flocks and without consciousing, you will step on a military leftover that's gonna finish your life or you're gonna be disabled. In this area, all kinds of services beside paved road are prohibited. So if you get disabled, you will die because you, you don't have any kind of service that will help you to live as a disabled person caused also by the occupation. In this area, you need to be a very healthy and strong worker in order to graze the sheep and to harvest the fields with a very primitive tools in order to gain your, 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 like, your livelihood. So if you lose part of your body, that's well, what would be harder for you. Last year, while we were making the, the, the campaign, we were asking Muhammad Mahamri from Mirkiz a few questions about his future. And his mom is offering us a cup of tea. Ali, we, we can't hear you. About the future of their only kid who lost his hand. Ali, I'm, I'm, we've lost you. We've lost your, your audio. Oh, we want to hear this. Ali, I think that we need to, to uh, fix your audio. Um, You're back. You're back. Tell good. I'm glad you're okay. back. Tell tell us again. Muhammad's mother was offering you tea last year. Yes. Yeah. So while we were interviewing Muhammad, and uh, while his mom is offering us the tea, when we were right, uh, like writing the stories of the people of the Masafir Yatta residents in the Save Masafir Yatta campaign. His mom, like the tears is like dropping from her eyes because she is very worried about her, the future of her son. As I said, like in order to live in this situation in Masafir Yatta, you need to be like a hard worker in order to be able to graze the sheep and to harvest the fields in a very primitive and simple tools. 
So what if the, uh, the military leftover make you a disability? It will be also hard in order to survive in this area with this, with this situation. So exactly like briefly, this is what it means for a person, the threats that the person would and might face living in a firing zone. I want also like to give an example for everyone. Like, yani in your first place, in the place where you live in your whole life, in the place where you have to practice your daily life. Can you imagine at the morning, you woke up, you walk to your office, or do you walk up to your place and you found a military tank is shooting or a group of soldiers is shooting next nearby your office? What would you feel? This is the same for the Masafariyata residents. While you are going to graze your sheep in your field, you might see a tank already destroyed it and beside it have a helicopter, have dropped a group of soldiers that are shooting alive bullets. Everyone would imagine and put himself in the place of the Masafariyata residents and can understand what does it mean to live, to make your home be declared as a firing zone and a military area. Thanks everyone. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for sharing all of that. And, and thank you also for talking to us about Muhammad. Um, I think my colleague put into the chat the, the website for the uh, Save Masafariyata campaign, which we're going to talk, talk about in just a moment, but you have a beautiful photograph there of Muhammad um, and, 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 and your interview with him. Um, and Muhammad is, of course, and his story of, of losing his hand is, is so, it's so unique. He is a human being and, and unique unto himself. And also this story of uh, unexploded ordnance left behind by the military after their drills is not is not unique, um, and my and there uh, is a lot of documentation of of this kind of ordnance in the Jordan Valley in in particular. Um, and there have been a, a, a fair number of media reports about uh, uh, what happens, what life is like living in the firing zone with the as you're describing the demolition of the destruction of of tents, uh, the leftover ordnance, the forced evictions. Um, and then in, in, in your particular case in Masafariyata, where people also live in caves, the, the destruction of the caves as well. So thank you, Ali, for all of that. Um, and Maya, yeah. I, I, I want to come back to you and I, I want to, we're going to talk about the campaign in a second. Let's, let's bring us up, up to date. Uh, the court is going to make a decision next week. Maybe it could also be another continuation, but the expectation is that there will be something. Um, and in August 2020, the court stated its preference for the parties to reach some kind of, of compromise. Um, can you talk to us about what the range of possible outcomes are for next, next week's hearing? Sure. So there's a few different things that could happen next week. Um, assuming that there is a decision, I think we can sort of think of it as almost like a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, it's possible that the court could rule that having a firing zone and occupied land is a violation of international law and it must be nullified. That ruling is incredibly, incredibly unlikely. It's not what we expect, but it is possible. The other end of the spectrum would be that the court would rule that um, it is legitimate for the army to declare a firing zone and it is necessary and rule that it is permissible for the army to forcibly transfer the population. Um, those are sort of the two ends of the spectrum. Somewhere in between is what we would call a quote unquote compromise. Now I wanna really emphasize the quote unquote here because it is going to be sold to us as being in the middle of this spectrum. And I actually think it's really important that we think of it as being on the side of the spectrum that is forced transfer. Um, so what the court could say and what I think is most likely that the court will rule is that Palestinians, the Palestinian communities will not be forcibly transferred from the area. They just need to leave a certain number of days a year in order to let the army train. Now in the state's most recent uh, proposal for what this would look like, the number of days that Palestinians would have to leave the area for army training is more than half of the year, more than half of the days. Um, such an arrangement would certainly make life untenable 
for, for anyone, and especially in these communities, which are dependent upon agriculture and working the land and shepherding, it would be fully impossible to continue living in the area in such a condition. And basically what such a compromise would be, would be a, a whitewashing of forced transfer. Um, it's a deceptive, misleading uh, word. I think it's one that we have to be prepared for um, because the state will immediately try to spin it as, um, you know, meeting halfway and painting the Palestinian communities as being unwilling to accept a compromise. And I think that those of us who care about um, solidarity and um, Palestinian steadfastness on the land need to remember and remind uh, our broader communities that partial force transfer is still force transfer. Um, Israel knows that this is a war crime. There's a, actually a 1967 opinion by the then military advocate General Meir Shamgal who warns against expelling residents from for, for the purposes of military training because doing so violates international law, violates treaties that Israel has signed onto. And even though these opinions have been submitted to the court and it is clear that Israel is aware of the international law violations, continues to pursue this. And its way of sort of trying to get around the international law violation is by using this misleading deceptive language of compromise. Um, I think it's also one last thing is that it's important to note that even if the court rules against us on Tuesday and rules that it is permissible to expel residents, the language of the decision would be it is permissible to expel residents should the army decide to do so, not that it is required. And in some cases, even if we lose, that's actually when the campaign becomes most critical and when we need to be putting the most pressure uh, because we need to make sure the army understands that there will be a price to pay if trucks show up and try to take people away, that that is not something that will pass unchallenged, that that will be resisted and make sure that the price is considered too, too high for the army to even try such a move. Um, so I think sort of no matter what the outcome is, we still have a long way ahead, but that's a bit of a range of the possibilities. Great, thank you for explaining that to us. And um, it's, I, I want to actually bring in the voice of, of B'Tselem here, uh, they wrote, they published a report, I think in, in 2020, called the Supreme Court of the Occupation. Um, and their uh, analysis is, uh, and, and here I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll quote from them. This is quoting B'Tselem. Over the years, the court has permitted nearly every kind of human rights violation that Israel has committed in the occupied territories. And then it, they list some of them. Violations approved by the court include the punitive house demolitions, lengthy detention without trial, the ongoing blockade of the Gaza Strip, and the imprisonment of some 2 million people inside it, the expulsion of entire communities from their homes, and the construction of the separation barrier on Palestinian territory, resulting in extensive land grab. And B'Tselem notes that, now I'm quoting again, the Palestinian petitioners before the Supreme Court are part of a population that completely lacks representation whose lives have been governed by a harsh military regime for over half a century, whose political rights are denied, and who can't participate in the most basic decisions concerning their lives. So while we're talking about going about the decision that the Supreme Court may render next week, it is important to keep in mind this analysis, this framing of, of the Supreme Court, of this tool uh, that, that uh, the, the villagers of Masafariyata are, are trying to access and the incredible power imbalance uh, as they try to access this tool. So I want to move now straight into talking about the campaign because this is truly a, 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 a Palestinian tool and, a, and, an, and an opportunity for solidarity as you have, uh, have described it. So I want to ask you, ask you both, what is this campaign to, to save Masafariyata? What are the goals? Who is organizing it? What are your methods? And um, Tell us more, please, Ali, please start. Yeah, so for, for like the campaigns, for the campaign of Sivma Safar Yatta, like uh, we, it's like about of a portraits of the faces of the, of the, of the, of the residents of the, of this, of those villages, like from like school children and old people who have lived here for generations and inherited these lands from their from their grandparents and from their ancestors and writing like the stories that they have lived lived through 
uh, of course like the goal the goal of the of this campaign is yani for example the 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 like the, the Israel is claiming that the people here like are not a permanent residents residents of this of this land but as we as we said like as we like I wrote and interviewed my grandparents and they they can you you can read their stories like inside and see their photos Ibrahim and Zhur inside the Save Masafar Yatta campaign and uh, Emily Glick who photographed their faces inside the village of Tuba they were born here like in 1942 and in the in, and they also their parents and their ancestors they were born here in the village of Tuba so this is like our goal like is to like the goal of this campaign is to bring like the support of the of the residents of these villages to in order to stop like the displacements against them and also like to show like for the for the world what does it mean to live in a firing zone and what does it mean to live in the occupation because my grand my grandma for example is telling her story as a child in the 40s and in the 50s much more before of the occupation in the village of Tuba and how safe and how peaceful her life was of just practicing her normal life day of working with the sheep and in the fields uh, and now, as she said, like a few years ago, uh, when she was seven years old, nothing happened to her while she was moving all around the village, all around the area of Masafar Yatta. And there, her parents were not worried about her moving with her siblings around the hills with the sheep and nothing ever happened to her. But what happened to her granddaughter in 2015, Sujud, when she was seven years old, she just behind the village of Tuba, behind our home, where I am sitting at the moment, 100 meters away from here, her granddaughter sent a bottle of water to her son, to her uncle, the son of my grandma, and she was hit by the settlers' stones. So what was like, I. As I said, like my goal to be part of this campaign is to achieve the hope of my grandma, what she concluded her interview, that she wished that her grandchildren one day will live in the peace that she lived in as a child in Masafar Yatta before of the Israeli occupation to the West Bank. Maybe Maya also like, would like to, to say something about that. I want to hear what, what Maya says, but Ali, I so appreciate that you just laid out for us what is the goal of this campaign to live in peace in Masafariyata with the kind of, of safety that your grandmother had that she describes so beautifully. If people go to the Save Masafariyata website, they can see this long, the interview you did with your grandmother, and she describes being able to, to walk everywhere and, and, and how safe she felt, physically safe she felt to live, to live her life. Um, so... And Thank I just you. want to add something. She also like described the places like she was like walking by herself, riding the donkey with the flocks. And she says, today there is the illegal outpost of Metzbeya Ir. There is the settlement of Susia. Like she's in, the, in those places where she was like uh, grazing her flocks. Now for Palestinians, I might be killed if I walk by myself there, by the settlers there. So this is like the connection of what does it mean, like policies of displacement, either a firing zone or a violence against the residents to live by themselves. Thank you. Maya, please tell us about the campaign. Great. So one piece of the campaign that we've been working on is exactly what Ali just described, is bringing these stories of the residents to a wider audience, which is, is both to bring faces to the story, but I think actually even more so to show creative ways that resistance has happened for a very long time in Masafra Yatta and will continue going forward. And so the stories that Ali described, we've captured in photo essays and in photographs by the photographer Emily Glick and have done a variety of media work and postering these portraits all over Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa, um, with the goal of trying to bring the name of Masafar Yatta and also the struggle of the people to a wider public. Um, one of the reasons we're doing this, which is part of a broader goal of the campaign, is something that might sound modest, but I actually think is crucially important, which is turning Masafar Yatta into a household name. 
And I think a really good example of how to understand why that's so important is thinking about examples like Khan al-Akhmar, Susia, Sheikh Jarrah, which are actually fairly small communities which have had very public international debates around demolition and eviction orders. All three of those communities are still standing today. And the reason that that is true is because of international pressure. It's because any congressperson in the United States has heard of Susia, despite the fact that it's a tiny village. Um, diplomats, organizations, activists, people invested in Israel-Palestine, these are names that people know. And that means that if there were to be demolitions in these places, the world would care. And that's what we need to have happen in Masafariyata. We need the world to know the name Masafariyata because that actually, that pressure itself is one of the strongest safeguards we have against evictions and demolitions. Um, and I think there's a broader conversation about how to do that more broadly, but it's something that all of us can take part in, in making sure that all sorts of, um, any sort of activity we're doing around, around Israel-Palestine involves a focus on the Safariyata, that we're constantly bringing it up um, and integrating it into our understanding and analysis of this place. A few other ways that people can get involved in the campaign. Um, the first is the website that I know has been put in the chat, savemasafariyata.com. On it has a uh, sign-up form that you're welcome to, we would love for you to fill out. And we're still working on the, the back end of this, but we're, we're going to be making a separate group for people who are based abroad and want to support the campaign. And so if you sign up, it might take us a little bit to, to figure out the logistics, but what we will have um, a way of communicating with people abroad who want to support opportunities to amplify actions that are happening on the ground, to contribute financially to the campaign and to the communities, um, other ways of, uh, of joining educational activities, webinars, virtual tours. Um, so that's all in the works and sign up on the website. Um, I'll say also that like we're a very um, informal grassroots uh, group of activists. And if there are ways that you feel excited to join, write us on the form. You can also email nodemolitions at gmail.com. And we're really happy to work with people. If you live in a community and you wanna take the posters we've already made with information and portraits from Asafariyata and put them up in your community and coordinate different communities at the same time, we would love that. And we're really open to different ideas and would love to be in touch with people around the world. Um, the last thing I'll say is that um, the hearing on the 15th this coming Tuesday, uh, there's a large protest planned for outside the Supreme Court in Jerusalem. For whoever here is on the ground here, we would love for you to join the protest um, outside the Supreme Court. We're, we're very much hoping that residents from the firing zone are able to get permits to attend the hearing, but that it's not yet clear, um, but will of course be in coordination and contact regardless. And for those of you who are not here on the ground, um, sharing the live stream of the protest, sharing uh, media that's gonna be coming out from the campaign in the coming days is a great way to amplify and make sure that the judges and the court system itself knows that the world is watching and that this case matters. Thank you, Maya. How can someone see the live stream of the, of the March 15th hearing? Where will it be posted? It will be posted on the All That's Left Facebook page. All That's Left Facebook page. Okay, thank you. Um, FMAP will for sure be watching. Um, Ali, did you, was there something you wanted to add? No, no, sorry, thank you, it was. Uh... Okay. Um, so what I, I just, we're, we're coming to the end of our, of our hour together, but I, I just, I wanted to um, sort of summarize that this campaign is both a, the activist campaign with the uh, going to the demonstration and asking people to, to take specific action to raise awareness around Masafariyata in their communities, but also this, um, this documentation, storytelling, photographs, interviews, this very deeply rooted piece of telling the stories of the people of Masafariyata and that this is something that that Ali has been a leader in uh, along with other people spearheading and initiating and spearheading as a kind of um, creating the oral history that is a, a, a political a politically important and living oral history of this area um, and so we have the everyone on the outside has the opportunity both to 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 learn more about this place 
um, coming directly from, from the, the, the children of this place of Masafariyata, like Ali and, and the other people doing this, this project of collecting these testimonies and these photographs. And also as Maya, you just described, um, there are ways to pay attention to what's happening uh, next week in the hearing and to take action if, if people want to. Um, so I want to thank you so much, both of you, Maya and, and Ali for being here. Um, and thank you for talking to us. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, and thank you so much to everyone in the audience who joined us or who listened to this event. We are so glad to be able to share this conversation with you. Um, we have recorded it. We will be sharing the recording, both the video and a podcast. All of the, the uh, resources that we talked about will be sent out to people who registered for the webinar and will also be available on our website, the FMEP org website later today. And I want to encourage everyone, please, to um, come back to, to the FMEP website. Uh, we will be covering the March 15th uh, hearing in two of our publications in our weekly settlement and annexation report, and also in our weekly news roundup. Um, so keep your eye on our, on our website and um, for the resources and also for announcements of upcoming events, of webinars and podcasts. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you again, Ali and Maya, and um, goodbye for now. Until next time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.